Hi, this is Jochen Henkel speaking. I'm a professor of technology and innovation management at Technical University of Munich, and you are listening to IP Friday. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 50 of IP Fridays. Today we have an interview for you with Professor Henkel of the Technical University of Munich, who has recently published a study on the enforceability and the patentability of granted patents. But before we jump into the interview, I want to give you some updates uh, from the European Patent Office. First of all, just a reminder, on April 1st, the fees, the official fees will change. Uh, head over to 3w.epo.org and have a look if this is important for your practice. But then I also want to give you an update on the conflict between the labor unions and the president of the European Patent Office. The European Patent Office published a press release on March 2nd, 2016, with the title EPO and Trade Union Sign Landmark Deal. The press release discusses that the president Battistelli signed an agreement with Samuel Vanderbil, who is the chair of the labor union FFPE. However, what you should also know is that FFPE only represents around 100 employees and none of them at the Munich location and the total number of employees is around 7,000. The main labor union, Suepo, has not signed a deal so far. In the last two weeks, the president has come under fire in the press in many countries, uh, among them in Germany. Even very conservative newspapers had quite critical stories about Battistelli. Some newspapers even say that he would be willing to leave the office if he would get a compensation of 18 million euros. But among all the very critical coverage in different newspapers and blogs, I found one very interesting piece um, on the blog Intellectual Property Watch, where Battistelli had the chance to explain his views on all the accusations and the hot topic of the conflict at the EPO. So if you want to read more about his view and the interview, you can head over to 3w.ipfridays.com slash intellectual property watch, one word, 3w.ipfridays.com slash intellectual property watch, one word. So now it's time for the interview. I'm very excited to be joined by Professor Dr. Joachim Henkel today. If you don't know who Joachim Henkel is, he is currently serving as professor at the Technical University of Munich, the School of Management. He currently holds the Theo Schöller Endowment Chair for Management of Technology and Innovation. 
He is obviously very interested in all kinds of uh, intellectual property, in particular patents. He received his degree in physics from Bonn and also uh, spent some sabbaticals, for example, at the MIT, at Harvard, and he is going to spend a sabbatical, as he told me, in Singapore. He's also sometimes expert witness in patent infringement cases. Um, thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So you have recently conducted a survey of patent invalidity in Germany, a very thorough survey, as I must say. Uh, can you briefly explain the reasons for and the scope of your survey? Well, certainly. So my team and I at Technical University of Munich have done research on patents for many years. In particular, we studied patent litigation and also patent assertion entities or MPEs. And what you observe if you look at patent litigation is that many cases eventually lead to invalidation of the patent. Now the question is how big is this issue? The numbers vary between countries, but in Germany, depending on the years you look at, it's about 75 to nearly 80 percent of all decisions by the courts are invalidations, partial or full invalidations. That's a great study by, by Hess, Müller-Steu and Wintermeyer who analyzed these decisions in much detail down to the level of Senate. But that's the starting point only, because the more general and also much more difficult question is, what about the other patents that are not challenged in court? So if you took a random sample of 1,000 patents, 1,000 active German patents, and took a serious budget and then tried to invalidate each of these 1,000 patents at the Federal Patent Court, if they had the time to deal with 1,000 patents, of course. So what share of these patents would be invalidated? And that's totally non-obvious, because it could be that um, only those patents go to the Federal Patent Court and possibly go on to the Federal Supreme Court. Only those, maybe, that are really shaky. Otherwise, you would not challenge them. So in that case, the average patent would be much more robust. But it could also be the other way around, that only the really good and robust patents get into infringement litigation and from there to invalidity uh, suits. So maybe, actually, uh, the average patent is much less robust than those that make it to the court. So that's totally non-obvious ex ante. And it's also very important because as a patent holder, you may consider entering litigation, but if you have to expect that your patent will invalidate it with uh, 75% probability, I mean partially or fully, and actually more than 40% of that is full invalidation, that's scary. So you may not actually want to do that. You can't really rely on your, on your property rights. But also for the other side, for the potential infringer, or for a company who's just facing lots of patents from competitors and wondering, do I really, are these really valid patents or should they not have been granted? So if I infringe or if I get a license, is it at all necessary or could I, would they go away if I try to invalidate them? So in the end, actually, are companies facing lots of patents that should never have been granted by the standards of the patent system itself? And so that's the question we're asking ourselves and we being Dr. Hans Tischka, who was at that time a PhD student I was advising, and myself. Uh, right now, Hans Tischka finished his PhD in this year, or actually last year, and uh, exactly on this topic. So we started with interviews in late 2012, and, well, dug deeper into that question, and did three things. First, interviews with uh, quite a number of people, many hours. Second, a survey among lawyers and patent lawyers in Germany with more than 300 participants. So... If anyone is listening who did contribute, thank you so much at this point. And third, an econometric and statistical analysis of 300 actual court decisions. So that's the scope of the survey or the, the study we did. Mm -hmm. So um, 
as you already just mentioned, you found out that most patents um, are invalid in uh, the invalidity proceedings. Um, that's also my experience and um, many people's experience probably. And they ask uh, themselves the same questions as you just uh, formulated them. Um, what do you think are the reasons for this that most patents are invalid? So what we learned from our interviews and also from in particular from the survey is that newly found prior art is rated as an important or very important reason for that. And that is also in line with what you learned from, from uh, court decisions, what the reasons indicated for invalidation. Um, and it's just, if you look at it, I mean, it's in some technology fields, notably in information and communication technology, it's nearly impossible, even for large firms and very good examiners, to do a complete search for prior art. So the standard of absolute novelty that the patent system has is just impossible to keep, and so all the patent system cannot live up to its own standards. Um, in other industries and other technology fields, it's far better. In pharmaceuticals and chemicals, we can much more clearly search for a certain molecule, but in ICT, it's, it's very, very hard. To some extent, it's also different standards. So the um, German courts dealing with these cases might have uh, higher standards in terms of allowing a patent or, or maintaining it than the courts have, sorry, than the patent offices have for granting, but that's a minor reason compared to the prior art thing. Mm. So that seems to be the main reason. And applying that again to our core question, which is, what about all the other patents that never make it to court? We actually find that the invalidation rate in an average sample of patents would be even slightly higher than for actual court decisions. So if you took a random sample of 100 patents, our prediction is 80%, roughly 80% of these would be partially or fully invalidated, and more than half of these 80 fully invalidated. So it's pretty, um, pretty disastrous, I would say. Yes. <laughs> so um, one of your conclusions in your study is that the current uh, patent system is suffering and uh, somewhat insufficient. <laughs> um, what would you change? I think the main problem with the patent system is that it is far too easy to get a patent. So I would significantly increase the threshold for granting a patent really to the point that the number of granted patents goes down to, let's say, one quarter of what we have today. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the fact that it's very, very easy to get a patent. I mean, of course, some patents are just fantastic inventions and, and they'll cover fantastic inventions and they are worth millions and, and that's a good thing. But on the lower margin, there's stuff granted that that 20, 30 years ago would have been embarrassing for engineers to fire. Um, so as a result, you have far too many patents with lots of implications. One is reduced transparency. It gets harder and harder to do a patent clearance because of just the amount of patents that's out there. Another one is companies are also blocked. I mean, patents are there. The idea of patents is to protect your own invention so you can come up with an innovation, really commercialize that, and not be attacked by imitators. And that's a good thing. The problem is since it's so easy to get patents, what companies routinely do, they get lots of patents not to protect their own innovations, but to block others, just to, to or to threaten others, uh, which is not really supportive for innovation, obviously. But then, as a company, you are in a dilemma. If it is easy to get a patent on an, even a trivial invention, but if you don't file it, well, then a competitor will do. And even though you might be able to invalidate that one, that's far short. I mean, you have to go to court, etc. It's costly, time-consuming, and uncertain. So the best thing to do is, well, file yourself. So companies are piling up, at least in some industries, they're piling up huge portfolios of patents that um, are largely there for defensive reasons or for offensive 
but not really for protecting their innovation. To give you one example, we just completed and, and published, as good as, a study on a patent portfolio race in newspaper printing presses. The two leading firms in that industry, KBA and Manroland, had a patent race in the late 90s. So KBA doubled their patent output, and three years later, Manroland followed suit, and they nearly tripled our the GPO German patent office nearly quadrupled their patent output, but we have no indication whatsoever of more innovation. It's just that they got into a patent race. Somebody starts it, the other follows. And one of the quotes was, <laughs> if they draw a line on paper, they would patent it. Which is not to say that they're not great inventions out there, but it's possible to get patents on very cheap ones, cheap, simple inventions, and that is not helpful to anyone. And now, the thing is that... Uh, in the public, certainly with politicians and also with, with marketing or, or investors sometimes, people think, oh, more patents means oh, more innovation, which is completely wrong. It has become the indicator that is looked upon and then people try to push up the indicator, partly also for the reason of marketing. More patents does not signal more innovation. And politicians and also the patent offices should be aware every patent they grant, it's an exclusion right for the patent holder. But it means that everybody else is, first of all, excluded or is facing the possibility of being excluded, which is bad for innovation. Mm -hmm. I think that former EPO president Brimelow, she recognized that and tried to raise the bar. And I think the EPO currently would be well advised to pursue that path. Uh, unfortunately, there's more of a focus on efficiency, which uh, I think will certainly not help to improve the quality of the examination. Okay. Um, I think... Um Currently, the EPO is also facing many other um, issues like uh, human resources issues and uh, fights between employees and employers, but uh, that's a completely other topic. It is, <laughs> indeed, yeah. So, um, you are saying that most of the patents are revoked because of new prior art, and I completely agree. Um, that's also my experience. At the same time, you say that you would increase the requirements for inventive step in the examination. In, in my opinion, that does not really uh, go together because um, the current case law for inventive step would be probably sufficient if the examiners would find better prior art, uh, in my opinion. So uh, in my experience, a party that wants to invalidate a patent and typically is sued uh, because of that patent, and then, of course, they have a really high budget for, let's say, 5,000 euros or 10,000 euros for conducting a prior art search and um, to defend themselves. And the um, examiner only has a couple of hours, uh, and you speak about efficiency at the European Patent Office, <laughs> to search for prior art. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I totally agree in principle. Uh, so the examiner has a limited amount of time and also limited resources. And um, I assume they're doing very good jobs given the time and budget and any tattoos they have. The thing is, it's just impossible to live up to that standard of, of absolute novelty. And indeed, a party that wants to invalidate a patent uh, has a budget that may be much higher. And I've seen cases where it wasn't 5,000, it was probably more like 10 times that or even more. It was um, sometimes if companies want to destroy a patent, they yes. go for great lengths <laughs> to do this. And, and then often succeed. Um, but I think this is a systematic problem. You can, it's just impossible to tell the examiner now, from now on, you have like five times as much time as before. This is impossible. So I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of reducing examination time or search for time that examiners have to search for prior art, but to increase it so much that we solve that problem of finding good prior art, that is probably impossible. 
There's, uh, in the academic literature, there's quite some discussion. Mark Lemley from uh, Stanford has written a paper a while ago uh, arguing for rational ignorance at the patent office, saying that, well, it's an unsolvable problem. Patent offices can do a complete search for prior art. So let's just live with that and let's hope that the really important things go to court anyway and then we examine them more closely. I think, and also other authors think, and, and also Mark Lemley has moved away from that partly, that's the wrong way to think about it because even patents that do not make it to court ever, they can be really hampering innovation by others because they are there and people invent around, they waste resources on inventing around or avoid the field altogether. So, but the, so the problem is pretty much insolvable, I think. So one thing that we suggest in our paper is to, first of all, raise the bar considerably, which was also good side effects in other ways. It would just increase transparency of the patent system. People would also spend less time on filing patents, reading patents, uh, monitoring patents, <laughs> enforcing patents, defending against patents, raise the bar, and then those patents that are then granted, I would give them a certain um, presumption of validity, which is the, the term in, in the U.S. A patent law, um, which is defined slightly differently than what we suggest. We suggest to say, well, first, let's be very restrictive in granting, far more restrictive than now. But once it's granted and once your position period is over, let's say, well, now you really have to show prior art that comes pretty close to that patent in order to invalidate it. Um, so you're saying you want to raise the bar, just as um, my friend Brimelo, and uh, <laughs> um, how exactly do you want to increase the requirements, for example, for inventive step? That's a very good question and an important one from a practical perspective. Um, I would say it's mainly a question for the legal experts how to do this exactly. <laughs> um, but, right, I mean, I, I do have some ideas, but, <laughs> well, then um, I'm, let, I'm just them, not, let them know. <laughs> I'm just not claiming to, to be an expert on these matters. However, so one thing is, um, the role of the examiner. I mean, an examiner is facing, uh, let's say a large company, large applicant, uh, with pretty much unlimited resources, while that examiner really look, has to look at the clock if he or she is, um, well, spending not too much time on that single patent. Talk about efficiency. Um, so it would definitely help to make it easier for the examiner to withstand the pressure from the applicants. In one way how or do you, I mean, how, what do you suggest? <clears throat> like, um, I, I would really, I don't think I'm really competent to, to do that here, uh, to, to comment on that. Um, that would be changes in the, in the procedures and the details, but also in the attitude in general. I mean, the general attitude to consider an office as a granting service agency for applicants is totally wrong at least as important is to consider the office as a guardian of the commons, meaning those inventions that are easily achievable for anyone. And these should never be patented because anybody else can, as soon as the problem appears, come up with that solution. Why give anybody an exclusion right on that one? It's just not helpful. So the EPO's attitude about its own role should change to from granting patents to the applicant to protecting the public from patents that shouldn't have been granted. That is, and considering there's one patent applicant that gets a patent, and there are millions of others who then facing that patent and who are restricted by it. So that is one, one uh, aspect about the, the role, the general attitude of the patent office. Now, of course, there's a governance problem here, uh, since the EPO and also the USPO, they actually live off their own fees. So I'm certainly not saying that the individual examiner has an incentive here, but overall, if a patent office became much more restrictive in granting, they would suffer real um, decreases in revenues, which is also not really nice, but 
Um, and I'm not saying that people really actively grant more to have higher income of fees. However, that is a fundamental governance problem. So the, the funding of the patent office from the EPO should be uh, different from the German patent office, but the funding should be, I think, different. And it should at least as importantly be considered as an institution that protects the public from unjustly granted patents. Um, I am representing not mostly not the very large, huge corporations, but many medium-sized companies, and they don't really have an unlimited budget. And even filing one patent and um, getting protection in, let's say, five other countries is uh, quite expensive for them. So um, uh, I don't really completely agree with your arguments on that line, that uh, the other side of the patent office is always... Um, uh, an applicant with unlimited resources and um, I think um, the I mean most jobs in Germany are created by medium-sized companies and not by the huge corporations and I think the medium-sized companies should have a fair chance to get a patent as well absolutely yes so no I'm, I'm totally aware that not every applicant has unlimited resources and especially since you talk about small firms um, I work a lot in the field of entrepreneurship and I'm talking to entrepreneurs. They're facing an even tougher problem than the medium-sized firm. They're facing the problem of having to get funding before the first revenues appear and still finance a patent or two. Absolutely. But these are usually not the applicants that would flood the patent office with trivial applications. I'm not concerned about these at all. I'm right. concerned more about the companies that... And, and um, apologize if that was uh, a misunderstanding here. I certainly don't think that everybody has unlimited resources, but quite some firms have. And um, here then I do see that problem. And, and also, if you are if, if you are in the situation of a mid-sized company and you're facing the question, so how many patents should we file on this new product with a with a higher bar? You might say, well, we can get three really good patents on on specific aspects of the product. Good, let's go for it. But if the bar is lower, then maybe you have to, well, you probably need to get a few more because our closest competitor will otherwise, maybe a bigger firm, will file other more trivial things. So they are in a, in a race, in a way, to increase their own portfolio, and that is exactly particularly difficult if they got budget restrictions. I you get your point. Right. All right, yes. I understand. So... Um You're saying uh, earlier in the interview, you said uh, that less granted patents would be a good thing. And um, why do you think, why would you think that the number of applicants, uh, the applications would decrease? Um, you're suggesting that uh, the applicants would get frustrated with the higher bars and then would file less patents? Yes. I mean, uh, it's a good question because we also have a study, by the way, with uh, also Florian Yell, a former doctorate student, uh, and Karin Häusl, a colleague from Mannheim, that finds that some companies are really happy to file patents and keep them pending in order to create uncertainty for others, even though they expect pretty well that this is never going to be granted. So even if you raise the bar, some companies might still file patents and knowing, well, I keep them pending for as long as possible, maybe even use the pendency period of up to seven years in Germany before they apply for, for examination. Um, some might do this, and so you might have lots of pending patents, but then some others might also say, well, if we don't get a patent on that one, let's not even bother filing it. So yes, I do think that would reduce the number of applications once companies have figured out that the bar has been raised. And I should say one more thing about really making the, um, it harder to grant patents, that problem and solution approach 
um, used by the EPO. And, and that is what we learned in interviews. This is not my own thought here. But if you're a really skillful, uh, patent attorney, then it's possible to, to formulate that problem in, in such a way that, yeah, it's impossible to find prior art, but still it's out of trivia. Yeah. So at least that, that's an issue here, right? I'm, I can't really mm. say now here's the exact solution, but maybe, maybe define then, uh, let's say if you, if you can come up with the existing or the, the invention that is claimed through combining three or so existing inventions, that is also somebody, something we learned in an interview, that might be a way to increase the, uh, the quantity of the set of prior art that really would uh, make patent grant, uh, deny patent grant. Mm. Um, you are saying that uh, patents hinder uh, innovation. I mean, this is a very emotional and very hot topic um, among many patent professionals from all different kinds of sides of this uh, topic. Um, in my personal view, um, for example, drugs against Alzheimer's disease or similar drugs would not be developed if there would be no patents. Um, under what conditions do you think that patents are bad for innovation? So, yeah, thank you for <laughs> that question <laughs> to really make it very clear here. So, I totally agree in some technology fields and definitely in pharmaceuticals, you need patents as an incentive for innovation. And that's totally good and nobody, well, very few people would argue about that. Uh, certainly not me. Um, so, one thing is uh, the... Um, the need for patents very strongly between technology fields and also the perceived effectiveness. I mean, there is lots of research out there that shows that people perceive patents as very effective in pharmaceuticals, chemicals, and some other fields, but pretty ineffective in others. And I should say, um, as an innovation management researcher, um, you'll find that some other mechanisms for protecting ransom innovation are usually considered far more effective than patents. So, and this is... Yeah, <laughs> This is um, something that's important to say here in this conversation, I think, because uh, people working with patents, they tend to have, well, you, you know the saying, if you have a hammer, the whole, whole world looks like a nail. Yes, hammers and nails are important. However, um, in many industries, it's far more important to have a good lead time, meaning to be fast from you know, invention to market, and to have good so-called complementary efforts, meaning good sales and services or production capacity, that kind of thing. And patents, very often, they rank pretty low when it comes to effectiveness for profiting from innovation. So anyway, patents are, in some industries, are not the very effective thing. In pharmaceuticals, they are, absolutely. So I totally agree. But then if you invent a new drug against Alzheimer, um, that would definitely take the threshold for um, a sufficiently large amount of steps. So that would not be a problem. There would be no issue. Yeah. And if, they, if it didn't, then, well, somebody else, could, a generic manufacturer, could maybe... Uh, develop drugs. On the other hand, also in pharmaceuticals, we see evergreening, etc. And that's the point where maybe the patent system is not really needed for promoting innovation, but it's actually used by the patent owners to prolong their monopoly at the expense of the public and people and the public health system paying more for the drug. But fundamentally, to make that point very clear, in that industry, definitely patents are useful, as they are in other industries. It's just that with the current amount of patents we have, we have reached a point where every additional patent is harmful to innovation. On average, I'm pretty sure that is the case. And so we would be well advised to find ways to reduce the start of patents. 
Okay, um, you have done this uh, study for Germany. Do you think this can be, uh, the results can be transferred to other legislations? Uh, can they be applied to, for example, the US or to Japan or China? Absolutely. Uh, the exact numbers, of course, are different. Uh, the invalidation rates are um, similarly high in Japan as in Germany. In the US, they had a dip in the 90s or so, but I think the most recent study shows something like 60%. Um, but the general logic of these selection effects, it's pretty much the same thing here. So I would expect that in every other country, if you took randomly took a sample of patents, average patents from the pool of existing patents, took them to the respective courts and went through these proceedings um, with sufficient budget for invalidation, then you would reach similar validity numbers as these countries have in their court decisions. So mm -hmm. the general logic, of course the institutional details are different, we have the bifurcated system in Germany, etc. But um, in general, the logic carries through pretty much, and I think that's a general problem, yes. Thank you very much for this very interesting interview. I mean, we covered lots of stuff, and um, you gave our readers probably some very good inspiration to think about this very difficult and interesting uh, topic. Um, some questions are still open, uh, for example, how to raise the bar and what are trivial patents, but of course these are very difficult questions, <laughs> as everyone knows, and uh, this will be uh, enough um, stuff to ask in a future interview. Um, I make sure I will include a link to your study in the show notes and a link to your website, of course, so people can uh, get in touch with you. Um, do you have any closing remarks? Well, first of all, thank you so much for that conversation. It's super interesting and, and helpful. And also, I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary exchange. So um, I'd be more than happy to receive comments on the paper or on this uh, interview uh, from people in the legal field uh, to maybe align economics, management, and law more closely. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for being on the show. Bye-bye. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.